The China in Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on China-Africa relations through training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Podcast Network. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by our two colleagues, Kobus van Staden, China Global South's managing editor in Johannesburg. A very good afternoon to you. Good afternoon. And our francophone editor joining us from the beautiful island of Mauritius, Jeronima. Bonjour, Jero. Bonjour, good afternoon to you, Eric. It's great to have you both with us today. What a fascinating week it's been in the China security space. While everybody was focusing on Xi Jinping in Moscow, and that was no doubt a big story, there was a lot going on in Africa. And this was an unusual week in Kobus. You and I have been following this particular thread for many, many years in terms of the security of Chinese nationals in various African countries. And in all the years that we've been focusing on that, this is the first time that I've seen three embassy warnings in the same week. So there was an embassy warning in Nigeria, South Africa, and then the Central African Republic. Now, the Central African Republic, in case you missed this big story, was the site of a horrific attack on Sunday morning at 5 a.m. Unknown assailants went to a Chinese mine outside of the capital, Bangui, like a few hundred kilometers. We're going to get some details on that. Open fire and killed nine Chinese nationals. This was by far one of the largest attacks in modern history on Chinese nationals in Africa that we've seen. It even prompted a response from Chinese President Xi Jinping, who called on the Central African Republic to severely punish the perpetrators. That, again, is something that we haven't seen before. Giraud, in your coverage on the Projet Afrique Chine, in our francophone coverage, you have been following the story very closely. Why don't you bring us up to date on the attack that happened in the Central African Republic, what we know and what we don't know. Okay, we know that the attack happened on Sunday at 5 a.m. local time. It happened in Bambari, which is a town which is like 400 kilometers from Bangui, the capital city. And the mine was located at 25 kilometers from that town of Bambari. And the attack was aiming a Chinese gold operation there, the company called Gold Coast Group. And nine Chinese were killed and two of them were wounded. So in total, we have 11 victims. So in terms of what we don't know, we still don't know who are responsible of these attacks so far. At the early coverage of the story, the mayor of Bambari was accusing the CPC, CPC, which is a rebel group, a coalition of rebel group that was put in place in 2019 to fight fight the current government in place. So they were like presented as the responsible of what happened there. So just after that, even the prime minister in Central African Republic made the same accusation. But just after that, the CPC reacted by saying we are not responsible of the attack. They on their side, they were accusing Wagner Group to be responsible of the attack and even implicating the local ministry of agriculture of the country to be responsible of, to be in complicit with Wagner and to launch the attack. And 
of course, the Wagner accusation had no foundation. Neither the, the accusation against the CPC, because when the Prime Minister and the Mayor of Banbury, they all mentioned the CPC, the coalition, they did not provide any proof. So far, what we do know also, we know that there are inquiries in place, investigations are ongoing right now. So we're going to have to wait in terms of knowing who are really responsible of that attack and what was the motivation behind that attack. So we still have to speculate so far. We're going to have to wait because those are, those kind of attack, unfortunately, kind of happen a lot in a lot of gold-related operations on Africa, so aiming to the Chinese. It's really important for us to draw very clear lines about what we know and what we don't know. There's a lot of rumors that are circulating out there right now on social media about who was involved and why. And Giraud brought up the issue of the Wagner Group. For those of you who may not be familiar with that, that is the private Russian mercenary army that is active in the Central African Republic and incidentally doing a large portion of the fighting in Ukraine as well, very close to the Putin administration in Moscow. So, Kobus, again, this week was special in a number of different ways because of the scale of the attack in the Central African Republic and the fact that in these travel advisories and these warnings on the Chinese embassy websites in Nigeria and in South Africa, where you are, the warnings that were only published in Chinese, by the way, not in English on any of on either of the sites, but in the Chinese language portion of the website, specifically saying that hostile entities, bandits, are specifically targeting Chinese for kidnapping and ransom and assault. And then we, of course, had the Central African Republic attack and the response from Xi. So lots going on. Give us your take on why you thought this week was particularly special as it relates to the security of Chinese nationals in Africa. Well, you know, over the last year or two, we've covered many attacks happening against Chinese nationals in various African countries. A lot of them are in low security environments where they work on large scale projects, be they, you know, infrastructure or mining. So this frequently means that they would be some of the only foreigners around. And that's because some of these projects are relatively rare in some of these countries, they also kind of stand out. But at the same time, we also seeing, you know, kind of some different for instance, cropping up in this week in the sense that, you know, many of these attacks in the past seem to have quite a clear motive, you know, either a, a direct profit motive. So some both terrorist and criminal organizations, you know, use kidnapping as a form of fundraising. And there's been allegations in the past that, that Chinese entities whose personnel have been kidnapped tend to sometimes pay ransoms, you know, which then tends to strengthen the cycle. In this case, there was no ransom demand. And it was also, you know, very difficult to say, like, what exactly the motive for the attack was. And, you know, at the same time, there's also, in, in the past, over the last two years or so, we've seen increasing coordination between African governments and Chinese authorities of various kinds, you know, to try and kind of improve the security situation, including sending delegations from Chinese police and sometimes even doing joint operations with African police, you know, bodies. So it'll be very interesting to see what happens in this case, particularly because Central African Republic has such a weak kind of public security infrastructure. Like, like one of the reasons why the Wagner Group is there is essentially to prop up the government. So it's a uniquely challenging, you know, environment. It'll be very revealing to see what comes out of this. Well, let's get an expert's perspective on all of this from really, in our view, the world's foremost expert on Chinese security and private security contractors around the world who's been studying this for a very, very long time. Alessandro Arduino is an affiliate lecturer at King's College London in their China Institute and joins us on the line from beautiful Torino, Italy. Welcome back to the show, Alex. 
Thank you for having me, Eric. Uh, it's been a long time, and I'm really glad to be back on the show. It has been a long time. It's been too long, in fact, and there's been a lot that's going on. Today, we want to start our conversation with what's going on in the Central African Republic and Africa more broadly. But because you look at this issue more globally, we'd like to kind of go to where you have been focusing on the Chinese in Central Asia, also in Pakistan and some other places, to see if there are trends that we can pick up in terms of security for people and property in those different countries. Let's start with the Central African Republic. Again, you have been studying this longer than almost anybody. What did you see in this attack, and did anything stand out as it did for Cobus? As all of you correctly mentioned, what stand out from this attack, that it's horrific, nine Chinese nationals killed, two seriously wounded, and an increased uncertainty in all the area with the Chinese embassy on red alert. Having said that, violence against Chinese workers that operate in the extractive sector is not new and is not only circumscribed to Africa. But the horrific part of this attack is that the motive is still not very clear. Government point the finger to the Coalition of Patriots for Change, shortened CPC, that uh, moved back the accusation without any proof, I have to say, uh, to the Wagner Group. So in, in this respect, uh, this is quite the first time that in Africa, the Wagner Group mercenary that uh, are expanding their footprint in the region are, let's say, called to the fore against China. Personally, I don't believe uh, that's the case. It's not something that, especially when uh, President Xi uh, was going to meet President Putin in, uh, in Moscow, this kind of accident can be forced. At the same time, uh, it's a question that we really need uh, to look at because uh, China is expanding, of course, after COVID, this interest uh, in, in Africa, uh, but also Wagner Group is expanding it and they have two different trajectories. First and foremost, the Chinese Belt and Road necessitates stability to prosper, while the Wagner Group thrive in chaos. And I think uh, in the future, we are going to see this, uh, let's say, friction possibly going to play out. If we move from Africa to other parts of the world, and recently I've been traveling to Central Asia, from Kazakhstan to Turkmenistan, I have to say that China, in terms of providing security to the Belt and Road Initiative, learned many of the lessons. What I mean from this, Chinese mining operation from Central Asia to Africa has also attracted severe controversy and criticism, mostly from local communities and environmental groups. Problem in deal with the Chinese company, uh, mostly the one related to mining for gold, diamonds and other uh, rare art mineral are uh, related to environmental degradation, accusation of displacement of local population and even human rights abuse. I have to say that in Central Asia, China learned from previous mistake. So when you travel, it's very difficult to find a Chinese worker, an extensive Chinese footprint. And even now, it's more difficult to find the information of where these operations are. And uh, unfortunately, I have to say that in Africa, probably, is still not yet the case. So that's why in low security area like Bangui, you have this kind of accident that leave uh, nine people dead on the ground. Just to return to the issue of the Wagner Group, you mentioned that you don't think that they were probably involved. And, you know, the fact that, that it overlaps with Chinese President Xi Jinping's visit to Moscow, you know, kind of like particularly heightens that contradiction. So I was wondering if you could unpack that a little bit. Like, what are some of the factors involved in making you think that the, it might not be them? 
Uh, I would say that we have to say what is the Wagner Group. Um, for too long uh, in the West, Wagner Group has been considered a private military company. It's not. It's mercenary that work for only one client, and that client is the Kremlin. But also it's an umbrella term, meaning that there are different kind of Wagner Group all over the world, basically. So if in Ukraine we have conscript fighting from Donbass to other area, in Africa, in my personal opinion, is where Wagner Group where really the rubber meets the road. Why? Because in Africa, the Wagner Group is the tip of the spear of Russian involvement in the country. It's quite efficient, meaning Russia doesn't have to deploy many resources. It's still not considered officially as Russian army, so it has a plausible liability. And at the same time, uh, is a placeholder for Moscow geopolitical interest in a natural resource-rich African country. And that's why there is an increasing expansion of Wagner Group in Africa, from Mali to Qatar to Sudan, probably to South Sudan as we speak. And in this area, Wagner Group is mostly former GRU, former special forces, and they basically train local government force or they even fight for money for the hard currency, for diamond, for gold, and it's also helped Putin and the oligarch to evade sanction. So uh, this expansion, as I mentioned before, thrive on chaos. But then if there is a link, a direct link with Putin, at the time that Russia need and desperately need the support of China, as we saw in the meeting, the recent meeting in Moscow, uh, there are serious doubts that they want to create problem with Chinese investment uh, on the Belt and Road Initiative in Africa. But at the same time, when I mentioned earlier, it's an umbrella term. So you can have groups that are locally providing the service for money, and this can create a, a problem with Moscow because there is still not a tight leash to this group of mercenaries. And we have already example of this, of what happened in Syria, that were some of this group fighting for local sheikh, and when they came back to Moscow, they got immediately arrested by the FSB. Irony is that still mercenarism and PMC, it's illegal by Russian law. Alessandro, you mentioned earlier when you were talking about Chinese operation in mining operation in Africa and even Central Asia, sometimes we see those tension between Chinese companies and local community. And uh, we also, in our coverage of those cases of uh, Chinese attack on the continent, we see that many mining operation, Chinese mining operation have been attacked. And most of them, they are more kind of mercantile attack where money was stolen, gold was stolen. In this case here, it seems that we have a kind of specific case because the operation just started. They didn't have money. They didn't have any gold with them. And when they described the way they were attacked, they were attacked by saying that the Chinese were just shot in the head. All of them, all the nine of them were shot in the head. They were just killed. It sounds as if we had that level of either revenge or personal kind of attack Those can in this attack. Have we ever seen this kind of situation happen before? Or it's kind of a personal case that we might be seeing here? Really, I don't think I can speculate more on this because uh, the, the information are still quite limited. Having said that, um, still uh, the problem of mitigating risk, uh, it's a very broad spectrum of issue, especially in Africa. But there are cases, as you ask, that are outside uh, the African continent. And I'm thinking about Pakistan, for example in which uh, Chinese worker and Chinese infrastructure are a kind of hostage of uh, broader 
internal tension, and I'm referring in Pakistan to the tension between central government in Islamabad and Balochistan region, where the Baluchi attack against Chinese are not directly per se against China, but as China is supporting Islamabad, then it gets into the target. So if we want to speculate about the reason about this attack in Central Asia Republic, probably to say that one way to stop Chinese support to the central government and the capital in Bangui is to create tension and fear over Chinese investment in a country. Again, I'm speculating, it's just a wild guess, but considering, as you mentioned, that there was no kidnapping for ransom, no kind of extortion, no any kind of material outcome coming out of this attack, one of the most possible cases is just to create tension and fear. And uh, of course it worked, because the embassy in Bangui called all the Chinese nationals outside the capital to come back and to avoid any kind of travel and visit in the region. And one other country we should put onto the discussion list is Afghanistan, where ISIS is now a major factor. And ISIS has come out this year and said China is specifically a target. In fact, there was an attack on a hotel in Kabul that is frequented by Chinese. And ISIS has specifically mentioned that they are attacking Chinese because of China's treatment of the Uyghur Muslim population. And so that is another factor. So you've talked about the situation in Pakistan, where they're caught in the middle of a domestic dispute. But in this case, in Afghanistan, it's directly tied, at least according to what ISIS is saying, to the Uyghur issue. Now, in Africa, one of the the other points that we should talk about, and I'd like to get your take on, is that in the post-COVID era, it seems to me anecdotally, and again, there are no facts on this, people like you study this more than anybody else, but one of the things that we do every day in our newsletters, anytime there's an attack on a Chinese national somewhere in Africa, we do record it and we do talk about it. And one of the things that we've noticed in the post-COVID era is that the attacks have gone up. So there are attacks that we've tracked in South Africa, in Angola, quite a few in Nigeria. In fact, Nigeria has had more warnings than any other country in Africa from the Chinese embassies. And so there have been attacks also on Chinese in Ethiopia during the war. And so people were asking, why is it that the attacks have gone up or the perception that more attacks have gone up? And I'm going to go back to some comments that Kobus made previously is that because of economic necessity, that people and the economies are suffering in many cases, attacking Chinese is an easy way for kidnap for ransom and to get money. I want to see if in your research that you've been tracking in Africa and elsewhere around the world, have you seen an increase in attacks in the post-COVID era? And if so, why? Yes, anecdotically, yes, there is an increase. Uh, but on this, as with all statistics, um, uh, it's better to step back and look at the broader picture. COVID-19 for more than two years imposed uh, restriction on mobility on Chinese worker and also on Chinese private security company. So we are seeing just now basically a restart uh, after the zero COVID dynamic policy of Chinese state-owned enterprises operation abroad, especially in Africa. So there has been a halt in several areas for more than two years, and now we are back with Chinese getting there in a large number Chinese workers. So in this respect, uh, this creates more opportunity. But at the same time, uh, when we are witnessing this sharp increase in Chinese worker, there is also a frustration of the local population that they have to say mostly on over-expectation 
of how Chinese investment uh, were promising a lot of money, wealth, uh, and at the end uh, it didn't materialize of, and also created environmental or social negative spillover. Having said that, these are over-expectations. It's not that China most of the time uh, was planning to offer this kind uh, of positive spillover. But in this respect, and let me just to get back to when you mentioned Afghanistan, this is another case of over-expectation. I do sincerely believe that uh, the Taliban, especially after the meeting that they had with at the time Foreign Affairs Minister Wang Yi and Mullah Baradar in Tianjin, are still expecting a lot from China. I don't think it's going to materialize. You mentioned the attack on the hotel with Chinese victim there, but mostly are Chinese individual who go there for trading. We don't see a big restart of operation, not even the small one as the Mesainak copper mine. And uh, the, the biggest fear, in my personal opinion, from Beijing is, as you mentioned correctly, the threat from the Islamic State in Khorasan. Now that the US and the coalition force are gone for good, the Islamic State can put as the first target China and Chinese investment. So one of the things that China is trying to avoid is this kind of negative spillover stemming from Afghanistan as a platform for terrorist organization operation in Central Asia and in China, and is basically reinforcing all the border and supporting country like Tajikistan, uh, or other country to avoid this kind of spillover. While at the same time, there is no record beside that attack in the hotel of accident and uh, attack on Chinese uh, infrastructure and personnel in Central Asia, Pakistan and Africa still remain two hotspots during the high instability in several areas where Chinese are investing. Giraud, I wanted to just get your input on the specific situation in the Central African Republic as well. You know, obviously we've covered very similar sounding attacks on Chinese mining interests in the Democratic Republic of Congo, or another country with a challenging kind of security situation. So I was wondering, how do you see the situation in the DRC being different or similar to Central African Republic? What are some of the specific things we need to keep in mind about the specific situation within Central African Republic? So in terms of similarities, we have mining operation first, and the second similarity is gold mining operation. And same thing in the case of the DRC, the most attack targeting Chinese mining operations, the most violent one where Chinese have been killed, are all related to gold mining activities. That's why I was quite surprised in the case of Central African Republic, where nothing was taken, no material, no equipment was taken based on the first report that we have, no money was taken. They would just came and they attack and they kill them. So in those, those, those are the kind of difference. In the case of DRC, they would be killing the Chinese and of course they would be killing them because of the money and the gold they've been transporting or something related to their operation. And the attack would be coming from either local community or either coming from a certain officers within the Congolese army because the reality is, in the case of the DRC, you'd have Chinese cooperating with some faction of the army to protect them in the mining operation. That mining operation being most of them being illegal so they'll be using the army so in the case of when two factions are fighting you'll see one officer sending his men to attack Chinese group and that's what that the case that happened last year and those officers have been arrested and sentenced to death so you have those kind of situations that's why in the case of the Central African Republic we have few information and the modus operandi the way it's happened and how it happened just like leaves us with a lot of questions
decisions in terms of motivation, in terms of the actors, in terms of like what are we looking at, uh, what's happening here. Alessandro mentioned the fact that in sometimes Chinese get caught in the middle of turf in like inland situation where inland sit problem between different factions of the government. That's maybe the case because we saw how much and after that how there were even protests yesterday is a protest where there is one NGO calling to support the Chinese community saying that China is still welcome in the country and it kind of tells you how much the government is kind of sensitive on how it's maybe perceived in terms of how China is welcome or not in the country and I remember a few weeks ago the Central African Republican president even was planning to go to China to kind of reassure China that you know the country is safe for Chinese investment to come in the country so we kind of see those patterns, the difference in terms of patterns that may question the motivation the actors behind that attack. Alessandro, just quickly to pick up on what happened in Central African Republic and the way the Chinese responded, it was unusual. It was unusual in part because we actually heard a statement from President Xi Jinping, who said he wanted the Central African Republic to severely punish the perpetrators. In all of the attacks that you've talked about previously, whether it's Pakistan, Afghanistan, any of the previous African attacks. As far as I remember, we've never heard the president issue a statement, haven't even heard the foreign minister issue a statement. The Chinese tend to keep this much more low profile. It's very different than, say, in the United States, that if Americans came under this type of quantity of attack, it would become a political issue. But it hasn't. Why do you think President Xi responded this time over the others? Is it because it was just the nine... The quantity of nine, or was it there's some other factor? I think there are several overlapping factors. Having said that, um, presidency for a few time uh, managed to address the nation when Chinese were killed or kidnapped. Uh, if I recall correct, uh, one of the time before this one in car was in Mali during the Bamako Radisson Hotel attack uh, that saw the killing of three Chinese uh, top managers from state-owned rail enterprise. Uh, and not long ago with the killing of several engineers uh, near the Dasu power plant in Pakistan and again the killing of three teachers from the Confucius Institute uh, in uh, Karachi. He responded to all of those? He actually issued a statement? He responded to, I think there was a statement in this case, uh, if it was directly from him or for Wang Yi. But then again, as you mentioned correctly, with uh, the increasing number of attack on Chinese national, normally it's the local embassy who issues a statement, not even the Minister of Foreign Affairs. But this time, one, definitely is the brutality of the attack. Two, it's a time when Xi Jinping started his third unprecedented time as at the helm of the People's Republic of China. And this kind of violence along the Belt and Road that is still his flagship foreign policy initiative project can tarnish his image. So definitely that's one of the reasons why it made very public that... uh, the local authority need to find the perpetrator and punish it accordingly, adding the pressure. The one uh, that was uh, released in Pakistan during the killing of the engineer, I think was more a message to Islamabad to say that China, having invested 63 billion US dollar in the country, was expecting more from the local security environment and especially from uh, the army and the police uh, in Pakistan to protect Chinese national. Alessandro, a lot of your work is focused on what Chinese actors end up 
doing to provide solutions when this kind of dependence that you, you mentioned on local authorities tend to break down? You know, like in a lot of cases, we, you know, kind of in, when we cover these kinds of attacks, they are frequently these calls to local authorities to implement the law and to find the perpetrators and so on. But, you know, like people who follow Africa know that that frequently tends not to happen. So, so frequently these Chinese companies then have to find other security solutions. So I was wondering if you could talk us through where they are, you know, in that process now. Like, you know, kind of you, you've covered the slow kind of deployment of Chinese private security companies, for example, for a long time. And I was wondering, you know, how far that's advanced. Like, what is the kind of on the ground footprint of, of, of some of these actors? Chinese principle of non-interference uh, is changing, is adapting, but is still there. Meaning that China, in like case like this, is not going to send uh, People Liberation Army or People Armed Police uh, to support local government. UN peacekeeping footprint is expanding, as you mentioned correctly before. Also, Chinese military is offered training to the local special forces, uh, but is not moving more than that uh, through our more, let's say, kinetic action. One of the solutions is private security company. They are evolving quite fast, I have to say. Still, the number of uh, very efficient Chinese private security companies is quite limited, less than 20 operating worldwide, while there are more than 10,000 with 4 million officers in mainland China. China is looking right now at an evolution of this company and at a law that will also guarantee that the ones that move abroad are going to be professional. Uh, one of the biggest problems, in my opinion, in Africa especially, is the fact that uh, there are an increasing number of uh, political motivated and criminally motivated actor and armed group that are looking at Chinese investment, especially the mining operation, as a source of revenue and also as a leverage against the central government. In this respect, from Cape Town to Cairo, the Chinese investment are not only driven by state-owned enterprises and is not only a Beijing top-down approach. Several miners are illegal and several companies try to engage a kind of do-it-yourself Chinese private security company, meaning they don't have license, they don't have especially the proper training, they don't have the local contact and knowledge to engage professional armed forces. And this do-it-yourself company lack a system of communication and consultation with Beijing, and they, I have to say, have no crisis management or risk assessment capability. And this is more due to their very limited small size and budget. And this, uh, in my personal opinion, uh, it's a risk for disaster. Alessandro, since you mentioned that case where we might not be expecting China to be sending people in Liberation Army to do that and the kind of support they're providing to local forces to try to mitigate those risks. And you mentioned something really interesting, the fact that many of those miners that have been attacked, most of them are private companies and they're also a lot of them are illegal operation in, in what they do. Some of them, they kind of mitigate their own risk by using local armed forces. Even sometimes they're foreigners, most of them are more, most of member of the police or member of the army. So the way you see things are evolving on the ground and the way now China is portraying itself to be, through the movies that have been showcasing lately, they portray themselves to become a very powerful country, a, a very growing forces in the world. How do you see that image being tarnished by the fact that Beijing is not reacting or is not even acting proactively to protect its citizen? abroad and in a place like Africa, for instance. 
I think we need to rephrase the question if, yes, image is going to be tarnished, but also China is still, uh, let's say, selling his uh, image as a country that do not interfere with uh, other country internal affairs. So, for example, the Chinese presence uh, in Central African Republic is still a very contentious issue because there is uh, Beijing need to strike a balance between uh, economic interest and security for its own people as all over the investment in highly unstable and complicated environment. Having said that, uh, it's uh, difficult to see that China is going to increase uh, its, let's say, official security footprint all over the Africa or uh, in, in other regions. For example, for Central Asia to Africa to the Middle East, uh, the overall global security architecture is changing. There is a perception that the United States is leaving, uh, is more moving to its uh, former role as offshore security balancer. And uh, especially in the West, everyone is asking when China is going to fill the security vacuum. I don't think this is the right question. I mean, is China interested in filling this security vacuum? And the answer, if you look especially at the Chinese academic that work on security, is straightforward. No. If you look at Central Asia and Afghanistan, uh, the call for many years is that uh, China is not to step in the cemetery of empire. Similarly, if we look uh, at the Chinese security expert narrative in the Middle East, China does not want to get involved in the Middle East quagmire. But at the same time, you can see China strike a quite unprecedented deal brokering a rapprochement between Saudi, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia and Iran. And again, in Africa, is China going to move military forces directly with kinetic action to protect this investment? I don't think that's going to happen. While it will increase efficient private security, more cooperation with local government, promoting the training of local troops and providing security equipment. I don't think heavy equipment material, but mostly in the form of border management and security management, especially with the new software and camera for facial recognition and crowd management control. Yeah, I'd like to close our discussion looking at this issue from the domestic point of view within China. And I'm just wondering if all of these movies that we've seen over the years that have become huge blockbuster successes. So there was Wolf Warrior 2 a couple of years ago, which showed kind of rescuing Chinese nationals. And it was this massive uber injection of patriotism and nationalism. And then just this past Chinese New Year holiday, Homecoming, was the number one movie at the box office. And that kind of depicted a fictitious African country. A lot of people said it was Libya and the evacuation of stranded Chinese nationals. And I'm just wondering if this entertainment culture has elevated the expectations of the Chinese population to the point where when they hear about these incidents overseas, and maybe we looked and we didn't see much coverage of the Central African Republic story in China domestically, but does it raise the expectation for the government to act and to be more proactive because these movies have really informed how a lot of people see China's role in the world and what the expectation and the role of the government is to protect them when they're overseas? The answer is straightforward. Absolutely yes. In this respect, uh, this uh, movie and uh, with all related discussion about it in mainland China project a visible sense that China is able to protect its Chinese uh, interests and citizens abroad. I mean, China did pretty well, I have to say, with People Liberation Navy are uh, 
when it was time to exfiltrate a Chinese worker from Libya during the fall of Muammar Gaddafi and in other areas. But then uh, this movie created... Uh, a sense of over-expectation about what China not only is willing to do, but it's able to do in terms of overseas operation. And unfortunately, it's not only among the Chinese public. I've been interviewed several Chinese companies working in a quite complex environment, and especially the one that they moved for the first time, probably they saw too many times Wolf Warrior 2, they were just thinking that in case of a crisis, they can just pick up the phone, call the embassy, and the embassy will take care of the problem. Also, the wolf warrior diplomacy, something that has been linked between this movie and the Chinese wolf warrior diplomat that very aggressive in uh, showcasing Chinese uh, rise, uh, this is changing. If we talk about China wolf warrior diplomacy, especially with the new minister of foreign affairs, the narrative is changing. And I recall the most famous wolf warrior diplomat, uh, Zhao Lijiang, who was the former foreign minister spokesman and basically was the face of wolf warrior assertiveness, is now has been um, sent to a new job looking at the Chinese border and now he's the deputy head of an obscure department, the Department of Boundary and Ocean Affairs. So I think that Beijing is starting to take very seriously this narrative of wolf warrior diplomat and the problem that over expectation can bite back. Well, as you can see, Alessandro Arduino is one of the leading experts on this issue anywhere in the world. We love having him on the show. I'm going to put some links to some of Alessandro's writings on the topic. He's done some fantastic work about China-Africa security and private security contractors around the world. So look for that in the show notes. Alessandro, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Alessandro is an affiliate lecturer at King's College London in the China Institute there and, you know, took some time out of being back in Torino after all of his travels around the world. So we are very grateful to you to join us on short notice to talk about what happened in the Central African Republic and all of the different areas that you're studying and following very closely. Thanks again. Thank you very much, Eric. It's reassuring to me that a guy like Alessandro doesn't know any more than we know on what happened in the Central African Republic, simply because, again, there are very few people out there who study this issue as closely as he does. And he had as many questions as we did. So the end of the day, Kobus, we don't know what happened in the Central African Republic. In so many ways, this attack was an outlier to what we've seen elsewhere in Africa over the years, and even in this past week. Again, not hostage for ransom. It was not, as Giraud talked about, the type of violence in the eastern DRC, where it oftentimes involves you know, land issues and environmental abuses and things like that. And there's some kind of motive that's easily apparent. We don't know any of this. So this might be an exceptional thing. That being said, if you are a Chinese security policymaker at the Public Security Bureau in Beijing or at the State Security Ministry, you have to be worried that this might be a precedent. So while it's exceptional, it could be an indication of what's to come. And the question is, if the Chinese are not going to deploy their forces out of Djibouti and to do the types of interventions that the United States and the French have done in the recent years, how do they protect their people? That is really the key question right now. 
Yeah, I mean, that's a, it's a huge question. You know, the Central African Republic, I think, is particularly challenging, even more than many other parts of Africa, in the sense that, as you say, this very, very low intelligence environment, you know, so it's very difficult for anyone to say what's going on in the Central African Republic. It's, it's such a dysfunctional area that, even in African terms, it's extremely challenging. So, you know, beyond what they're going to do, like actually how they're going to intervene, even knowing what to do or knowing who they're dealing with becomes such a challenge you know kind of one of the things that that we've been seeing i think in several african environments is that there is for example this blurring of the lines between terrorism and kind of mafia style organized crime it's frequently very difficult to say whether these whether attacks are ideologically motivated economically motivated both you know, like it could be both. It could be one or the other. So so in that sense, Africa is tough in this respect, but I think Central African Republic is particularly tough in this respect. Yeah. And I, I want to come back to this Wagner Group thing, Giro, because we've talked about this before the show, and it just doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make sense because why would the Wagner Group do this at this moment, exactly when Xi Jinping was in Moscow? And I just think that this is a cheap excuse from people maybe in the Central African Republic who thought they could get away with saying it and that people wouldn't notice. But at the same time, maybe they just don't understand how this world works outside of the Central African Republic. You and I talk about this in terms of the Congo, how a lot of the stakeholders in the DRC don't fundamentally understand the politics and the machine of Washington because they're so kind of in their own bubble. And so I don't think there's any credibility to the Wagner Group. I just don't see it aligning with any of their interests. But as Kobus said, and as Alessandro pointed out, the car is a strange place, and strange things happen in strange places. So I don't want to completely take it off the table, but on the surface, I don't think there's any merit to it. I'm completely in alignment with you. I share the same point of view. I don't really think that Wagner has any, would be having any interest to do that. In a way, to do that in so a gruesome way to just come and, you have, you have that sensation it was just a come and kill operations. Like, why Wagner would do that to Chinese operation in the region? Why they would just launch and decide to kill them? What would be the reason? When you think of the many reasons that where China and Russia, how much they are allies, and in the moment of those attacks, you just realize that there is really no ground for any Russian involved parties to launch this kind of situation, to launch this kind of attack against Chinese. Even if it was a local group that may have had a connection with Wagner Group, if Wagner's, I do believe that if Wagner Group was aware that it would be targeting Chinese, they would totally advise against those kind of operation, knowing the spillover and the outcome of those kind of operation and the reputation it can damage between Beijing and Moscow. So for me, we cannot take it out of the table, even though it's really just, I mean, it's really just improbable that Wagner is behind that. I mean, in, in the, the, one, the one point I would make is, 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 you know, kind of it might be good to not overestimate the amount of central control happening, you know, kind of in among all, in the first place, you know, they might be Wagner affiliated or linked rather than core Wagner personnel, but also they might, they might be, you know, kind of groups within, within the organization or broken lines of communication or, you know, other kind of like local versus versus kind of re, like global coordination may they may well be kind of breakdowns in that system yeah that's a very good point it's an excellent point and i want to talk about isis a little bit because i think this is actually in many ways a much more pressing threat for the chinese the declaration by isis in afghanistan that the chinese now are officially targets and the attack on the chinese hotel and a bomb that exploded outside of the afghan foreign ministry 
is potentially far more problematic for the Chinese in Africa too, where ISIS is active in Mozambique, also in the Sahel, and it's been picked up in, I think, Somalia and in the Horn of Africa a little bit. And so if... And it's trying to gain ground in DRC as well. And it's that's right. It's been detected in the DRC as well. And so if this anti-Chinese thinking kind of permeates into the ISIS ideology, that could spread into Africa as well and open a new front for security challenges for the Chinese in lots of different places in Africa. So, Kobus, it's interesting. You did some research on Chinese in the Sahel in the security space, and I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts about the risk that ISIS may pose to Chinese actors in Africa. You know, it certainly is a risk. I think the issue is that disaggregating ISIS as an uh, as an ideological force versus, say, ISIS as a conduit for weapons and money. You know, like well, that's what I was thinking. I was thinking it's more of an ideological. It's more of a concept rather than a, a, a as you said with Wagner, not a centralized entity that has a command and control system. You know, that's con- coordinating it. But if it filters into the ideology, that might be. A challenge. I guess. I mean, you know, like there, I, I'd love to kind of hear from from kind of area experts, you know, on that particular issue, particularly in countries that don't have much of a history of Islamic activism, you know, like the DRC, for example, like the similar situation in, in Mozambique, it was a region that didn't have that kind of record until they did. You know, so in that sense, the way that the particular kind of interactions between incoming actors and locals, and the way that the, the kind of entrepreneurialism that's happening in terms of weapons trade, in terms of, you know, kind of concessions to mineral resources, in terms of kind of ideological kind of turf defining, you know, kind of ha- happening in those countries, like th- that it needs a lot more unpacking, you know, kind of, and, and with it then comes the unpacking of what an organization like ISIS actually is, you know, how they actually function as an organization. Sheol, I'm going to give you the last word, and we're going to talk about the DR Congo and how the Chinese approach to this issue is also evolving. And last December, there was a series of communications that came out of the Chinese embassy in Kinshasa, warning Chinese citizens in the eastern Congo, that it was in the two Kivus and also in Ituri province, that they had in Manyema. And where? Manyema region. In Manyema as well. And said, basically, you have, and I think the date was in December 5th, I think, but don't quote me on that. But it was, you have until this date to get out. And if you don't get out, you're on your own. And I thought that was really interesting how they were very clear to their people to say, we will not be able to do anything for you if you don't listen to what we're saying, that these areas are so dangerous, we'll help you evacuate now. But if you stay, you're 100% on your own. That was a new tactic that I hadn't seen before. Yes, I think it was last September. It was coming right after the moment where we had a lot of debate about the tension between Chinese miners and local communities because most of the Chinese, they didn't have the mining rights to operate in the region. So out of this tension, they were like, okay, guys, anyway, you are in safe there. You are in the, in the insecurity just high there. You just better leave the place. You just better leave the region and come back here. And because we won't be able to protect you and to extend our political clout over Kinshasa to try to do something for you while we know that you are basically illegally mining gold in those regions. 
So that's what I did. But the reality is up till now, we're in 2023, March, most of them, they're still there. They're even growing and more in different, they're even expanding in different regions of that part of the country. And as I was saying earlier, they now they just resort on using local armed forces. When I say local armed forces, I'm not talking about armed group. I'm talking about really FRDC, the Congolese army, in terms of some of the units, they're using them to protect their operation with the risk that comes with it. Because sometimes those same people, they turn their back against them and they attack them. So it's stories like what's been going on in the DRC and in the Central African Republic are the reasons why it's so important that we have a separate Francophone division who can look at these stories from the local perspective in French to better understand what's going on on social media and to dig through the stories. Giraud and his team is doing that. Giraud, tell us a little bit about the coverage and if people want to sign up for your newsletter and follow your podcast, where can they do that? So we are really following those stories locally with the local people talking with them on and following up what's happening on social media and local media in French, of course. And if you want to follow everything that we do, you just have to visit our website, www.projetafrikchine.com or you go to China Global South and you have just on top of the page there, you have the French, you just click there, it's going to redirect you on the French website. We also have our twice weekly newsletter that comes out every Tuesday and every, every Friday where we give you a kind of summary of all the story that we've been covering on the China Global South. You want to do that, you also go to the Projet Afrique Chin, just up to the page, you write down your email and you submit it there straight. You're going to be receiving our newsletter twice a week. And if you'd like to get the full coverage of what we're doing in English, go to chinaglobalsouth.com and you can try out our daily digest that we send out to thousands of subscribers every day. Uh, this week, we've been focusing a lot on the development finance space and some really fascinating things that have been happening in Beijing on this issue. We'll save all of that discussion for another show. We're very excited to have a bunch of development finance shows coming up. But one of the things that Cobus and I and the team are doing is we're really trying to help you look around the corner to see the issues before everybody else does. And because we're focusing on this in such detail, obsessive detail, we're able to pick up the trends before everybody else does, and that's what subscribers to our newsletter get. So if you'd like to try out the newsletter and to support the independent journalism that Giraud, Cobus, and all of us are doing, we really would appreciate it. Go to chinaglobalsouth.com slash subscribe. Again, chinaglobalsouth.com slash subscribe, and you'll get a free 30-day trial to try it out. We also have half-off rates for students and teachers. Drop me an email eric at chinaafricaproject.com with your academic email address, and I'll give you the codes to get the discounts there. So that'll do it. We'll all be back again next week with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. For Giraud in Mauritius and Cobus in South Africa, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Tag us on Twitter at ChinaGSProject and visit us at chinaglobalsouth.com. If you speak French, check out our full coverage at projetafriquechine.com and Afriquechine on Twitter. That's Afrique with a K. And you'll also find links to our sites and social media channels in Arabic. <laughs>